The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Talo for lover. I'm Madeline Chapman, editor at The Spin-Off. If you have the means, consider supporting our high-quality journalism by becoming a Spin-Off member. Sign up now at thespinoff.co.nz/donate. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by Spark Lab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about Spark Lab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callahan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Pound. Karangahapi Road has long been a home of music, but it might be news to you that it's an internationally recognised hotspot for music software innovation and excellence. Within music, owner of some of the world's biggest music brands like Newmark, Denon and Akai, making their software here. It's part of a music hub with InMusic, Serato and Melodics, all big brands in the neighbourhood, and all sharing a connection to today's guest. Morgan Donoghue was with Serato in key roles for its growth, is an investor in Melodics and is MD at InMusic. But that's not all. He's also the COO for a very interesting new earphone technology company called Neura, who use software to create personalised audio experiences for listeners. More on that later. They hit the news for a deal with the All Blacks, where the national team took equity in the company in return for a sponsorship deal in a novel and interesting business approach. It's just the latest in a big career in music, which before these roles also saw Morgan as the global head of music for Vodafone and with his wife Nikki as award-winning managers of Holly Smith. To talk the deal, music, the roles as advisor, investor, MD and COO, and making New Zealand music tech sing, Morgan Donoghue joins us now. Kia ora, thank you for being here. Kia ora, how are you Simon? Oh, great, great, thank you. Um, t- tell me first about your, like, you know, that, that's a big long intro of kind of cool sounding things. Um, t- tell me first about your your start in the music industry and, yeah, being involved in like hundreds of tours and acts before you were even 20. Yeah, I mean, it was it all came from helping people, I think. So my final year at high school, uh, my old mates from Coromandel that I'd grown up with uh, had started a band, and I think they needed someone to help carry amps. But uh, they said, do you want to be the manager of the band? And I was like, oh, yeah, this will be cool. And so uh, I lugged a lot of gear around and uh, helped them and learned a lot of things. And uh, then... Uh, the band broke up and I got asked to um, then work on the big day out in 1996. I think that was the second big day out. And, oh my word, it was it was a great time. I was living at home. I was getting paid $200 a week. I had taken a holiday from uh, my communications degree at AUT where I was into my second year of it. 
And they said, look, why don't you stay on full time or up your salary from $200 to $250? And um, and we've got this woman, Alanis Morissette, doing, we've got this band, The Fugees, we've got the Smashing Pumpkins, Cranberries, Tina Turner, blah, blah. And it just went on and on. I'm like, oh, I can always go back and finish that degree. Uh-huh. I never did. I never will. Uh, <laughs> it was weird going back to... Uh, judge the AUT uh, Innovation Awards last year as a judge and going back onto campus and then pretending that I knew what I was talking about. I, they definitely didn't think that at the time when I was leaving. I think I've got a library book that I'm still... <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> Lucky computers weren't really yeah, invented. Yeah. <laughs> I've, th- I've almost paid back my student loan. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so, so it all started there. Um, there's a guy called Johnny Leach who uh, was the... He was involved in both the Big Day Out, mm. and I'd asked him to uh, help with the uh, tour management of the band. We were going to Wellington to play a gig at Barbara Dagren. I'd never been to Wellington to do a gig. I'd been mm. to school there, but didn't know how to do a gig. So we got him along thinking he'd be awesome, and he was like, I, you don't need me. I need you. So uh, so that was the start of it. That's uh, awesome. It must have been Pretty exciting as a kind of student uh, and moving from studying communications and, uh, you know, the world of media to then being right in there with some of the biggest kind of um, media companies and brands in the world. Yeah, it, it was. And it was a real awakening because um, the company, the sequel that I was with, they'd gone through their uh, own issues. The company before that had gone bankrupt. Um uh, due to some tax issues, and uh, you know the the new owner had her own issues, and so I'd come in as this young kid and just been thrown into this room of faxes. So there'd been a fax machine that had just kept rolling out these faxes, and no one had filed them or done anything. And I'm, you know, it was like this room just full of faxes. So the first week was cutting the faxes into pages, and then. Um, going, okay, what does this all mean? What are we touring? What's happening here? So um, it was something where you really had to throw yourself into it and understand it even from a young age because there was not a lot of leadership there. Yeah, and I guess you've got to keep your your head on your shoulders as well in um, an environment like that with tours and all the like. Is They're big business operations as well as seeming like a lot of fun from the outside, aren't they? Yeah, there is, and you've got some great artists and you've got some upset artists. I mean, I remember Green Day on that first tour and we were doing it and the gig had been sold out forever. It must have been 96, 97, I guess, and, and they wanted to leave the country and not do the gig because uh, they'd had a bad time coming through customs because they forgot to get their visas. And it was like, dude. And the Australian promoter, Michael Copper, was on the phone going, don't let them leave, don't let them leave. And so I didn't let them leave. And uh, and they did the gig and then left happily. But, yeah, you're in some pretty stressful situations uh, mm-hmm. as you go through these things. Yeah, and, like, you know, 50, you know, I, I don't know, like, 10,000 people turning up to a concert and then you've got um, all of the equipment and everything going on and then the person just doesn't want to do it. <laughs> yeah, or, or you've got the big yeah. day out, yeah. which that 96 big day out, that I thought that was going to be one of the best days ever and I'd probably put it as one of the worst. And, and the reason was that everything was going great. It was a nice sunny day. Um, the big bands were about to come on and it was 
kind of before the internet. And so we had to do the ticket reconciliation in, at Ticketek in town. So I drove in on the Friday afternoon to go and do that at about four o'clock. Then the rain came in over the southern motorway and I was uh, in the fast lane on the uh, main over the new market flyover and it just started pissing down. And uh, my car that had never broken down before broke down in the fast lane. The police came and shunted me from behind and pushed me over four lanes of traffic and I had the old brick cell phone that had like 30 minutes of battery life. Dylan Tate called. He's like, where are you? Where are you? And I'm like, I'm stuck. I'm and he said, I'm coming to do a story on it. And I'm like, oh, dude. <laughs> and then the battery went flat. <laughs> and then the AA came and pushed the car along and got that going and then went into Ticketek and did that and then got back to the stadium and it was, you know, everyone was angry and upset and what's happened and where have you been and what are you doing and oh, it was horrible. So then I knew I needed to do another one just to make sure that I could actually have ticked it off and done something mm-hmm. decent and not had a horrible drama. Uh, so yeah, it worked out well, but very, yeah, you're booking PAs, you're doing the immigration, you're picking the band up at the airport. So yeah, I had a hundred of those before I was 21. It was yeah. bizarre. That's remarkable. And what's it like, you know, being put into that kind of environment at that age, meeting the stars and meeting kind of these people who you're probably not seeing them at their best because, you know, they're probably saving their energy for when they're having to do the media and stuff or, you know, what's it like? Yeah, I mean, those first times were fine. It wasn't like I was, a lot of them were new artists coming through, so you didn't have time to be massive Mm. fans at the time. And uh, look, I'd grown up on 90s hip hop and a lot of this was... Yeah, yeah, alt American stuff. So I wasn't so into it. So, yeah, obviously, the Smashing Pumpkins put a lot of great records out, but it wasn't my the thing. So it didn't really. I wasn't that in awe of them. When it came to the Beastie Boys, and I was at EMI, that was a different story um, because you know it had been for me Beastie Boys, Tribe Called Quest, Atlas, the whole gangster, all all of those kind of nineties things, and so then. Uh, my mate Zane had just moved to the UK, and so we went. And I don't, I don't even know what year it is. Let, let's say it's '97. I'll work it out later. Um, and uh, and we went to Reading Festival, and the day finished Foo Fighters, Prodigy, Foo Fighters, Supergrass, Beastie Boys, Prodigy, and so we had this great day. And then I went to LA afterwards and saw them play in the Great Western Forum, where the, the Lakers home ground and. They played in the round, and because I'd worked, I was at EMI. I went and played basketball with them beforehand. Ah! <laughs> Got some terrible photos that I can never share with anyone. They'll be going, "Who is this dick with his arms around us?" Anyway, they they then came six weeks later and toured New Zealand, and and we then we had a great time. We hung out and we went record shopping and out for breakfast, and and it was really cool. And they signed. Um, I, I, I don't know if it's the biggest, but I've definitely got a really large signed Beastie Boys final collection. Mm. Seven, tens, twelve, skateboards, backstage <laughs> passes. You're in there for about an hour well, well, signing and stuff. Well, no, it was interesting because we were all on the plane coming back from Wellington. We'd had this great time and they're like, oh, do you have any of our stuff? Like, 
And I was like, yeah, yeah, I've got this. And they're like, oh, can we sign it? I'm like, of course you can. Yeah. <laughs> and so they've, got, they've really gone to town on it. So mm. it, it's, there's some uh, cool stuff there. Um, and then, you know, Radiohead, that was, mm. oh, and Coldplay, you know, like Radiohead, we were um, together at Piha when they found out they were nominated for their first Grammy, um, which was yeah, a great time. We had a guitar to OK Computer coming back in the car, which was, which was good. Uh, the, my first exposure to them was um, Colin Greenwood from the band The Bass Player calling up. And uh, I was just sitting at my office at EMI, and there was this call, and this guy goes, Hello, it's uh, Colin from Radiohead. And I thought it was my mate Dave from the next office. So I'm like, I'm like... Sure it is, mate. He goes, no, it really is. It's Colin from Radiohead. Um, he goes, look, I was wondering if I could get uh, tickets to Tony Joe White at the power station. And I'm like, okay, look, if this really is Colin. And he said, in exchange, I'll come and play the new record. I said, look, if this really is Colin from Radiohead and you really do have the new record, come up tomorrow. I'll get you tickets to Tony Joe White at the power station. Uh, and I'll put you up for two nights if you do some promo for me. So... Sure enough, next afternoon, Colin from Radio, he, he turns up with a CD of OK Computer. Finished. I'm like, oh, brilliant. Cool. So he plays it for all the staff. We go out for dinner. And next day we go and, and do promo. Now, he goes to every radio station. Well, you know, it's BFM. It's uh, The Herald. It's Rip It Up. It's Real Groove. So he goes and does it. He burns off a CD for everyone. He gives BFM the CD. They've got Six songs on eight rotators, just smashing it out, smashing it out. Three, four months later, I get a letter from, because email, the, the internet doesn't exist. I know it's hard for people to imagine this, right? We had this thing called CC Mail, and so we get this CC Mail, and it says, We're sending you an advanced tape of the new Radiohead single. It's not to be played outside the office. Now, it's on. Everyone's got it. Everyone's got it. Everyone's listening to it. But that shows there was no real internet and, and, you know, and the cool things we could do before that. And so, you know, it, with all those artists, yeah, it was, it was awesome. It, it had a great time. And what was it? You know, how did you get into um, EMI and the, the label game from being with the sequel and working on... Um, the big day out and all those big gigs. I think it was Everclear or Supergrass or something like that. We were promoting a show and the EMI guys came along and uh, there was there was a woman called Tree O'Neill and I think she was like, okay, you're really cool. You're probably a little painful because you're a <laughs> young dude, but um, <laughs> you know, like we'll, we'll, we'll work through that. And um, it was just lucky, I think. So I had I started in promotions. Uh, and then the promotions manager became pregnant, so I got her role because she decided not to come back. And then Cherie got pregnant and uh, decided not to come back, so then I got her role. So it was um, something in the water, potentially. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, but, yeah, so it was – I think with all of these things, you know, it's, it's a bit of luck involved along the way. So, And, and what, what is it, what's involved with working in the, the labels? Because in a small place like um, – New Zealand, I imagine you wear a lot of the hats, like but A and R, promo, you know, finances, the whole the whole kind of bit of um and, and you're kind of like a sales and marketing operation in that you're you're making cultural products. I mean it's not not probably how people want to talk about music, is it? But like it's like you're launching a great new cultural product every every couple of months. Yeah, and I'd I'd say a cultural product is exactly the right way to describe mm. it in the sense that 
we had very few local artists it, that we had signed directly. So Crowded House and Neil Finn, we had, they were signed to Parlophone in the UK, and we had the Martin Birds, they were signed to Virgin UK. Um, and we, we had a few other things, but not things that we'd actually been a part of popular culture. And as a kid growing up that had come through managing bands at school, I was like, I want to get into this. This is something I, I really want to do. And I went really hard and said, we have to do this. And I was 25 by this point, I guess, and I'm, uh, they put me in charge of running EMI. And so I was like, okay, I, I want to do this. And so we went through the whole process and very much the finance and the budgeting and stuff. And Chris Gaddett, the managing director, and you know, my mentor to a large degree is, he was like, okay, but it's all on you. And we're not doing it to not pay them any money. That, that, that has, you know, other record companies have done a great job at paying artists nothing, mm. right, and, and making lots of money. We will not be doing that. If we're not paying the artists a royalty check once a quarter, we are failing ourselves and we're definitely failing them and it, it's going to look bad for us. So you've got to be clear with your a and um, and we were, and we, we we did a whole lot of different deals. So we had some direct signings, we had some licensing deals, and we had some P&D deals. But a- across the whole thing, we probably did 27 uh, local albums, and they all went gold or platinum. So we had Good Shirt, Golden Horse, Op Shop, Salmonella Dub, Black Seeds, Blind Spot, uh, tons. It's a Tons. pretty good hit rate for a standing start, like a standing still start if you didn't have any A&R going, and then you picked out some of what became kind of the, the iconic bands of those years. Yep. Yeah, what, what was it that there was a, a – were the other labels not doing um, the local scene justice, or how was it that there was that clear space there? They were very commercial, commercially focused, I guess, you know, that you had – Bitcrungers, you had Stellars, you had um, Brook Frasers, you know, and, and they were just straight ahead pop songs and, mm-hmm. and, and beautiful pops. Like I love, I love all bits of music, but I love some great pop songs. So, um, but we wanted to be slightly different. We wanted to be, you know, we wanted to, like we'd always been, we wanted to break out of the alternative and come to mainstream rather than just throwing ourselves in mainstream. So, you know, yeah, we, we built, I'll, I'll take Good Shirt as an example. We, Built that up from the boys being in their garden shed mm. in Greylin uh, and and recording it all there, and then we worked the song. I think "Bucket Up" was the first single we did, and and we went through it, and then you know halfway through the project, we had a number one single with Sophie, and it was yeah, that must have been exciting. So was that one of the first big bets that you took? Yeah, yeah. I, I remember when I called Grant Hislop, their their manager, and said he's working at Warner's, which was two floors below us. And I was driving to Coromandel for the weekend with some mates to stay at mum and dad's and I put the demo on and I was just like, yeah, I signed that. Mm. And and so we did. And I remember I was driving over the Miranda bumps on the way to Coromandel. I'm like, yep, done. Um, and so and we signed the deal the following week. Um, Golden Horse, an, another example, we, we had it through Tracy McGann's Siren Records on a licensing deal and then... It'd been we'd released it, it was nearly gold, but it kind of faded away and then we were like, This may be tomorrow, this is gonna be a hit and they're playing with the uh, APO at the tear centre and we can repackage it and we can do a whole lot of things, but they can't afford to spend the money on marketing. We can. We'll license it off them to do this marketing. And 
So we did, and I think it's the uh, longest an album's been off the chart and come back in mm. straight at number one. Um, and, and it did, and went on to sell triple platinum. And So, yeah, look, we had a lot of those things that broke out of alternative and, and, and went to mainstream. Yeah, and, and when you mentioned before that, you know, lots of record labels structure deals in a way that means that artists don't necessarily make money. Walk us through a bit of that because, um, you know, they're, they're kind of famous, those stories of people, um, you know, great New Zealand bands who uh, get get a video done by a big name director and then spend the next six years of their contract paying it back and never make a dollar and, you know, yeah, I mean, are buying, yeah. are a, 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 a smoke a, off you outside of bar. A thinking stereogram, Michael Gondre or Michelle Gondre. Yeah, yeah, th- things like that. But that happens like that's maybe one obvious example of it. But lots of bands that that's happened to in terms of the, the marketing or whatever has never been recouped. Yeah. Mm. And, and look, I, it, a lot of it comes down to that original split you do mm. and, and how much of the marketing's recoupable and, and who that sits with. Um, we always structured our deal so that that risk was on us, not mm. the artist. So if we wanted to do something and spend lots of money, mm. They were always on a guaranteed royalty rate, no matter what happened. It would, we, on some occasions, we might ask for a royalty break to go to TV advertising, and they would take a reduced royalty. But look, it, every quarter we sent all the bands a check, which was what we always set out to do. And we had some really successful albums, and that set up a whole lot of uh, good touring for the artists as well. Um, yeah, and, and we loved it. And, yeah, it was something that all our staff really fed into because, you know, we we're, were a part of it. Mm. Um, it was super exciting. And then doing pretty well in, you know, young young Jap, uh, you know, getting that, – that sounds like um, some pretty exciting stuff to be to be working on and making happen. What, what – what, uh, and, and, then, and then there's also a bit of music management around there, isn't there, with Holly Smith at a very exciting time in her career? Yeah, yeah, that was awesome. So um, – my wife had done, Nikki had done the music supervision for the number two soundtrack, mm. uh, as well as Yoni's Wedding and a whole lot of other stuff happening at the time. And for that, Don McGlashan had written Bathe in the River and had got Holly to sing it. And uh, the number two soundtrack was coming out on EMI. And I was, it was about the time I was finishing up. And the final album I was putting out, local album, was The Black Seeds, on the Sun album, I think, or into the dojo, into the dojo, and um, it came in at number one. And Barney from the Black Seeds and Holly were together, and so I got to meet Holly. And then over the next few months, she asked us to manage her, um, and yeah, that was incredible. I, I hadn't done management since I was at school. Um, with the young band coming through, and it, it was it was great, and we we changed things up a lot. Uh, we went through a pretty interesting phase in the in the sense that it was going to come out indie. Obviously, all the majors were into it and wanted it because they could see this vibe growing from Bathe in the River. And Chris Caddick had said, "Look, what do I need to do to get the record?" I was like, "Dude, it's not going to happen. The only way it happens is if you get an international release." And here are the 10 people I think you should send it to. And uh, he sent that to um, the 10 people, and one of them was Bruce Lanvile. And Bruce ran was the president of Blue Note Records internationally. He was the guy that 
um, had been at Columbia that had paid off Miles Davis's million-dollar cocaine debt because he was about to get killed by the mob. He had amazing stories about anything he wanted to talk about. And um, and he had called Chris and said, I'll get them on a plane. So I'm still working through a million dollars of cocaine debt. Yeah, yeah, I know. Like, it's quite a lot. US as well. It's quite a lot. US and back then, like, that'd be enough to buy a small kind of island. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, have you seen that Miles Davis documentary? No, I haven't seen oh, it. Okay. No, they, okay. they talk about it in that, so I'm not breaking any confidence here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, so, and Bruce's... Uh, Signing prior to Holly had been Nora Jones, which had sold twenty million. So he was right, right in the vibe. Um, and so we went. So so Holly and I had been out somewhere the night before. I don't know what was going on, but we got pretty messed up the night before. She was staying at our house. I'd gone into Vodafone because I just started working there. And there were these messages on my phone, but I was too hungover to actually listen to them. And then Chris Chris called and, and goes, "You check your bloody messages." And I went, and I went, "Nah." He goes, "I said, oh, mate, I'm so hungover. What's going on? Check your messages." I'm like, "Oh, mate, can you just cut to the chase? They want you on a plane tonight. They want you to New York. Blue Note want to sign you." And I'm like, "Oh, okay, yeah, okay, cool. Uh, yeah, okay, let me deal. With, okay, cool." And so then. Um, I went home. Holly was still asleep. Asleep. I jumped on the bed and jumped up and down. She's like, "What the fuck are you doing?" And I'm like, "I got a record deal in New York with Blue Note." And she's like, "What?" Anyway, we we flew out. I'm not sure if it was that night or the next night. And um, in our backpacks, and we got there. I, I, I hope she's got this photo somewhere. There's a photo of they sent the stretch limousine to pick us up at the airport, and, and there we are with our backpacks, looking like some. Kiwis on their OE, <laughs> um, and, and getting in this limo, which is Bruce Lumvile's personal limo driver. <laughs> I mean, it was an amazing time, and they t- took us through you know so many stories. Um, they gave us. We went and saw Winter Marseilles play at the um, how, whatever annual American Jazz Review. We did this deal, which was awesome at the time. Sadly. Back to business, uh, EMI got sold um, to a private equity company called Terra Firma, which is run by a guy called Guy Hands, and they were like, and we were a worldwide priority, right? We we, we just recorded, re-recorded the same album with a guy called James Poiser, who's uh, produced Erica Badu, Common, D'Angelo, blah blah blah, and he's a keyboard player in, in the Roots. And so we we're all ready to go, and then they're like, "Okay, so what we what, this guy Billy Mann who had produced uh, the Joss Stone record came along and was like, look, um, 'Look, I'm doing A and R now, and what you're going to do is you're going to uh, record a covers album of classic American rock songs uh, in Harlem with live with the gospel choir, and we'll put it on this thing called YouTube.'" And I'm like, we don't sign to the most prestigious jazz label in the world to do covers. Uh, and the covers were Coldplay Fix You and America Raise Light. I'm like, guys, you are so off off point. So in the end, we went through a few things and we got our rights back. And, and, and that was that. It's so remarkable, eh, how much of... Um you know, successes, things that actually just break all the way through, comes down to that luck and timing. Like, yep. if it hadn't sold at the top there, um, you know, I've got, got friends and um, cut off your hands and they had a similar yep. thing where, you know, the, the 
management upstairs got sold to a different label and so the A&R changed and suddenly they dropped in a priority thing and you, you know it's almost like a game of snakes and ladders the music industry isn't it where you yeah. climb the ladder and then you fall back down a snake and then you climb a ladder and you hope that you get through it's, it's quite brutal mm. I've been lucky to kind of stay just ticking along yeah. uh, <laughs> not, 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 not too many uh, snakes along the way I seem to have avoided a few snakes yeah if you love the spin-off, the best way to show it is to become part of the spin-off members. This is the fund that helps us keep free and accessible to all without a paywall. It also funds some of our most important and acclaimed journalism. Check it out through the spin-off. Kia ora, I'm Sophie. And I'm Simon. And I'm Alice, and together we host the spin-off's food podcast, Dietary Requirements. Join us each month as we explore a vast culinary landscape. From the gourmet Ooh la la. to your more hearty tucker. Kiwi onion dip, anyone? Everything's on the table in Dietary Requirements. Subscribe wherever you listen to all your other favourite podcasts. And you, you mentioned their Vodafone. So you went in from, from the label side of things and to help um, the music uh, industry's kind of the music industry was a very important part of mobile phone um, re- revenue and, and, and business at, at, at that stage. What was what was the role there? Well, yeah, I mean, it, this is 2006, and I think the other labels were pretty keen for me not to be at EMI because for, in 2006 we had the most local market share of, of anyone, and that, you know, that wasn't sitting well. And plus we were breaking some of the harder to break English acts and stuff like that. Everyone else, the way we saw it, had some pretty easy rock-up hits. We had no American repertoire, really. It was all English because we're an English company, uh, whereas everyone else had their big uh, global hits coming out of America. So we really needed to manufacture our own. So, uh, And we'd done that really successfully, and we're always up there aiming for a number one in terms of market share. And so it was, it was a bit of a fight between the labels. And so I think some of the... My other mates at the labels were encouraging Vodafone to offer me the job. So it was head of music. They were looking to launch dual delivery music. Uh, so music delivered to your PC and your telephone simultaneously. Um, this is before the first iPhone. And we launched late 2006, about a week before iTunes launched into the market. There wasn't a week that I was there with that we weren't number one with local, uh, with market share in terms of single sales. Um, we I think we just rode the wave really nicely at the time and captured it just before they did. But by a long way, we were there was no one else in the Vodafone world that was in any way close to us. Um, and so we got recognised by both international labels and Vodafone International. The global president of digital for Universal, uh, a good mate called Rob Wells, came down. We had this terrible dinner at the French Cafe. The dinner itself was great, but we had a terrible fight there. Um, Neil and Sharon Flynn were at the next table for their wedding anniversary. We pretty much got kicked out. It was, um, yeah, it, it was bad. I ended up, I had to stop drinking, which I, I don't really do. I was like one wine, and I'm like, oh, this is going badly. I'll just, I'll just stop so I can keep focused. And there was uh, Adam Holt, the chairman of Universal New Zealand locally and the GM of Vodafone and me and this guy Rob Wells and we just went hammer on tong and I told him he didn't understand digital music you know you know, just normal kind of annoying Kiwi stuff. Well, it, and, and it really was a, a moment wasn't it and that 
Napster and LimeWire had shown that music consumers wanted access to heaps of music and they didn't want to pay uh, you know, $35 a CD or $33 a CD that would scratch. Uh, The cell phone ringtones, you know, it's it's like, it's not that long ago. I don't want to sound like everything was in black and white. Like ringtones were before the internet. (laughs) Ringtones were big business. And actually music on your phone was one of the only proper use cases for mobile telephony kind of extras uh, at at, at that moment. Um, People were trying to work out streaming. All the record labels were at war over it. There were competing standards. This is like, you know, it was a wild minefield to be working in at that stage. It was. It was was really crazy. And everyone trying to check the iTunes revenue as well, because that was what was keeping the labels afloat. So, uh, yeah, ringtones, ringback tones. Uh, we never had ringback tones in New Zealand at Vodafone. Telecom, Spark did. Um, we ended up being so successful after the d- bad dinner. Rob Wells said, "You can have anything you like if you want to do streaming. Do streaming." Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, da da da. So that that was great. And then he called maybe two months later and he said, "Look, I know I promised all that. You can't actually have it now because your company globally is terrible. We're going to pull all their rights down, uh, but we will leave." New Zealand up, but I can't give you anything new. And so I wrote to the uh, the guy that became my boss a pretty rude email saying, I don't know what you're doing over there, but you're really stuffing up my stuff, so you should really sort your stuff out. I expected <laughs> to be fired when I turned the BlackBerry on the next morning, uh, but there was a plane ticket, and so I flew out that night. Um, yeah, this is this is a funny one, but um, we, we had a day with Sir Lucian Grange, who's the most powerful man in music, the chairman of Universal Worldwide, and all the European MDs for Universal, and the same for Vodafone. It was just this. It achieved nothing during the day. Yeah, but it was all around, like, massive sponsorships and all sorts of things. And at the end of the day, Rob said, oh, let's go wakeboarding. And I didn't even know what wakeboarding was. And so I said, what happens? He said, well, you know, you go in a lake and da-da-da. So I said, I'll get my togs. He said, I've already got some for you. So it was obviously pre-planned. <laughs> so so him, just him and I went out there, uh, did a few laps. I couldn't do it. He said, if you uh, get up this time, I'll give you uh, DRM-free New Zealand only. So get rid of the digital rights management from your files. I'm like, great. Did two laps, gave him the finger, fell off, went to the pub and... Um, and, and, and that was that. I went back to the hotel and all the Vodafone guys are there and they're like, oh, what happened? I'm like, I've got my deals. You guys are still screwed. So good luck with that. And that's when they offered me the global head of music role. I said, I'll come back in two months once I've launched my stuff. So did that and originally said, look, uh, I'll come up for three months till the Christmas. We'll see how we go. If you like me and I like you, then we can do that. Otherwise, I'm happy back at home. Uh, their big thing was launching streaming services. So this is late 2008 and it was it it was once again weird the second day when had lunch with Rob and uh, Nicola and Francis who worked for him and they and I was like okay well if we'll change this clause and this clause and this clause da 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 ran it back through the lawyers at Vodafone and a deal that they'd been three years negotiating was then done and then we could launch so 2009 came along and I'd been running around with the Spotify founders at the same time because we were all trying to push the same thing. And uh, we launched at the same time. And I think I had dinner with Daniel Eck, the CEO of Spotify, and 
uh, Khan, and he said, oh, we've got 250,000 subscribers. You know, we're the biggest in Europe. And I said, oh, tomorrow we're going to announce that we've got half a million in Spain, a million in Europe, and we're the biggest. And he's like, oh. And at that point, we had some discussions about uh, Vodafone acquiring Spotify. I think that would have been a bad thing for both companies. Spotify have obviously become pretty massive, mm. and Vodafone probably would have ruined that service, I imagine. I'm getting the sense that the music industry doesn't have maybe the most conventional path through a career, and that I don't see many CVs that say, uh, gave the dude the fingers while wakeboarding. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but yeah. I, I guess like it's really cool to be in a space where it's the outputs and the relationships yeah. um, that, that make the deals happen, yeah. uh, and, and, and to see that in kind of kind of a larger-than-life way across the whole industry with a lot of these, you know, the big figures that a lot of the um, music labels have always been famous for kind of idiosyncratic approaches to kind of business, oh, hey? yeah. I mean, it, I don't know if you've read that Walter Yetnikoff Howling at the Moon book, but my word. There's <laughs> some craziness. My word, yeah. There's some craziness going on in there. I mean, I only read about that stuff in the 80s. Yeah. I, was, I, was, I was young, but... Man, yeah, there is some craziness. I don't think I was there for the most crazy years. Mm. Um, and then out of and that, that, that you know out of the UK and then back to New Zealand, out of a you know, big big job in, um, in in music rights management for Vodafone, and then to a small startup in New Zealand yeah. that was making its name in music called Serato. And I don't know, like people in New Zealand kind of might know how successful that's been, but. It's ended up becoming basically a noun for its whole area of the category, and you know, mentioned in songs by Kanye West, and you, you know, the absolute standard for DJs worldwide. That's a pretty unlikely thing to happen for a bit of software and algorithm from a couple of chaps in New Zealand. Yeah, I mean, Stephen AJ um, did an amazing job there. For me, coming back, oh, look, I, I'd had an amazing time. I, that that job at that time from 2008 to 2011 and, and running around and doing streaming deals and, you know, doing the ringback tone deal for India or Egypt where there's all these things, you know, you know, going to the Brit Awards, judge at the Brit Awards, MTV, all, the, all of that and the craziness that went with it was awesome. But I was just throwing myself at work. I didn't really go out. I just worked and worked mm. and worked. Um, and then... Look, my kids were pretty young. One of them had started school over there. Holly was four and a bit when we went over. They were both sounding really English. <laughs> daddy, daddy. And I'm like, <coughs> can't, 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 can't leave this too long, can you? Um, and my good mate, Sam Gribben, uh, had come over um, with his wife, Tamara, and their little, um, little baby, Lucy, who's now not little or a baby, um, and we were just, you know, and he was saying, look, I need someone to do sales and marketing. Do you know anyone? And I was like, oh, yeah, oh, I might come back for that. So, yeah, we negotiated probably for too long. but um, And I thought about saying, I, I look, I was working on a deal that if it had happened, I'd have probably stayed for years and it would have changed the entire music industry and it didn't work. And I was just like, oh, I can't stay on and just keep peddling the same thing. I'm so invested in this. I wanted to do something else. Serato at the time was 25 people doing about two bits of hardware a year. And I was like, okay, we need to, it'd be good to help a local company. So 
I did. It was six years. Um, with, I think by the time I left, there's probably 125 people and had, had an awesome time. And, yeah, so happy that out of that, Serato's grown, Melodics has grown, and now there's in music as well. So, Yeah, yeah. So Melodics um, is what Sam Gribben went on to after. And, and um, you know, it's it's another kind of app where, you know, it's gonna it's got a real potential to be like a standard across the whole world for uh, you know the best way to kind of practice and get close to music, which is which is also pretty wild that that Serato and in music where you're the MD are all just in Karangahapi Road, and uh, that's become this global kind of centre for music software innovation excellence. How does that happen? Um, well, I mean, Serato were there, yeah. <laughs> that's right. So that that's fine. Uh, Melodics, you know, Sam always said when he left, you know, he'd been there 10 years. So it was, mm. you know, he wanted to go and do, do his own thing. And I stayed for a little while, but not, not too much longer. And he said, I'm going to go and do my own thing. And I said, I don't care what it is, I'm investing. Because for me, I think you've probably seen this, but it's about the people mm-hmm. and, the, and the relationship. And so I'm like, I don't care what the idea is. I'm putting money in. I'm putting my money on you. And... Um, and so I invested in the first couple of rounds, and then it became quite quite a lot of money, and so I didn't invest after that. But um, yeah, I mean, Sam's done very, very well there. Um, and then the in music thing came about. I I had left Serato, taken six months off. I just wanted to walk around listening to music and actually be a bit of a nicer person and not fully focused on music, bit of family time, bit of cooking, just yeah, just actually having rest because I'd worked 24 years in a row of non-stop, pretty high-octane stuff. And then people started approaching me, um, uh, hardware manufacturers from overseas and software companies and, and a few other people. So uh, one of them is... A guy called Jack O'Donnell, and he run he owns in music globally. So he owns eighteen of the biggest musical instruments brands personally. And he said, "Look, you're coming to America next week. I'm flying you here. We're going to talk about what we can do together." And I'm like, "Dude, I don't want a full time job. I, I, it's just not what I'm about." He goes, "Just come with me. We'll we'll work together." And so I spent the week uh, with him and went to every meeting he went to and. He said, look, come on, let's let's do this. I said, I'll do three days a week and we can do a few things. We'll see what happens. And I'd got back from doing a trip because I was travelling to America every six weeks to kind of work with him for a couple of weeks. And then I just drove back on the Saturday. On the Sunday, he called and he said, you better be ready. I'm coming down on Friday and you're setting up an office and we're going to employ lots of developers and I want to interview people all weekend. And I was like, Oh man! So I had to find an office, do a lease. But the good thing was we'd bought a company in New Zealand prior, a Tauranga uh, lighting-based company called SoundSwitch, uh, and a multi-million deal a few weeks before. So I already had a New Zealand entity set up. So we, then we could do rent the space on K Road. We could get a fridge. We could, yeah. You know, we, we so I did all of that stuff before we arrived. Some desks, some chairs, and then we just interviewed people all weekend. And we employed ten people that weekend. I think it's up to about sixty-five now. Um, doing all DJ software for Denon's uh, software um, desktop software. So it's called Engine. That's I mean, and so you're kind of exporting 
software, exporting bits, weightless export, uh, set up kind of a, an international centre for uh, making the software. How does that happen in New Zealand? Because you'd think that, um, I don't know, maybe LA's the centre of um, the, the, the music kind of uh, industry, or maybe it's here, or maybe it's there. Like, like how does it end up being... Auckland, New Zealand. I, th- I think there's probably three of these. So I think mm. LA's one. Mm. I think Berlin's probably mm-hmm. the other. And now Auckland. Yeah. Um, and I think it's just people, right? So Stephen AJ founded Serato. So I think without them, none of this really happens. Mm-hmm. There, you know, Sam wouldn't. Sam came back from Amsterdam because he really believed in the DVS, their the vinyl solution. Um, so Sam came back. So then I guess without Sam, it, it, it doesn't happen. And then, you know, there's Melodics. I think Jack probably would have done it anyway. There's a lot of amazing software developers mm. here. And, and that's what in music had struggled with internationally. And look, we, we had the Prime Minister through the office six weeks ago maybe. And, you know, that, that was the conversation. Because I think when, when you're losing... You know, as we are with COVID, the entire tourism sector, which is our second biggest exporter, and then you, I think you can replace that with tech, and, and tech can be that that thing and create a lot of money and a lot of jobs. And so I think that getting that bit right now is super important. Um, and look, I think Jack could continue to grow, you know, this New Zealand operation because right now it's with one of his DJ brands, but he's got. Music production, yeah, and we're just doing the desktop software, not even really that much of the embedded stuff. Um, so yeah, I think there's still heaps of potential to grow. And so you're you're there, kind of like technically three days a week, although I imagine that three days is sometimes uh, has been a lot over the uh, years. No, I'm not even there three days a week. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm nearly yeah uh, nearly full time Nero. I think I mean. Yeah. Uh, uh, I do the odd thing here mm. and there. I've got uh, assembled a great team, mm, mm. Uh, and, and you know I'm involved in some high level discussions, and I talk to Jack quite yeah, a lot. Yeah, yeah. But got a great team there, and yeah, you know, I, I stay across it. But yeah. Yeah. Very light touch. <laughs> well, and and then the Nura, as you mentioned there, so people would have seen the news of the the uh, All Blacks deal, where the All Blacks are taking some equity in Neura in order to um, to do the sponsorship. T- tell me about, like, what what, what is Neura? It's this amazing thing that kind of popped out into the world as, as personalised sound. How does that work for, for earphones? Well, so just like everyone's got different eyesight, everyone's got different shoe size, everyone's got different shirt size, obviously everyone has exposed themselves to different levels of audio. Too much doff doff, too much this too much that is too close to the speaker so your hearing's going to suffer um so this um adapts eqs specifically to your hearing so that the first minute is a hearing test and it's very similar to how you test a baby when they're born so send a little uh, message down to the cochlear and that sends it back so um yeah we, we've got some super super smart people there um, particularly the co-founder. So, so you check you check the 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 buds in your ear, and yeah. it and it kind of maps the tool, inside tool, of your tool, the tool, shape tool, of your tool. ear yeah. cavity, yeah. and and what what how how you actually respond to noise. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So so, I mean the probably the best example I can use is we went to Jazzy Jeff's house uh, 
he has this thing every year called the Playlist Retreat where there's a hundred of the best DJs and producers uh, from around the world and he brings them all together. Uh, there was a New York DJ called Mel Starr and he lost the hear- hearing in his left ear in 9-11 and so hasn't heard out of the left ear for 20 years. I'll show you a video after this of him sitting there, putting the cans on, and then crying as he hears for the first time in 20 years. So it is particularly amazing ability to uh, find out what's happening in your hearing and then adjust it so you have the equivalent of 2020 vision with glasses. Oh, that's remarkable. And so you got, got into that company as an investor and then got into kind of operations and then all packs? Walk me through this. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so there's a, a, a VC company in uh, Australia called Blackbird. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And they're now, uh, they've created a specific New Zealand fund as well, a $50 million New Zealand tech fund, which is super interesting. Um, and they just announced a half billion dollar mm. fund in Australia as well. And they came over here April, May last year. And they asked to speak to six people. So one of their partners, uh, Nick, came over. And and I was one of the six. And so we were just chatting. And I was actually just trying to get my kids Billie Eilish tickets as they went on sale. So I really wasn't that engaged. I was just trying to refresh the screen so the kids wouldn't shout at me when I got home. And we talked about a whole lot of stuff. And then at the end, he said, oh, we've got this headphone company that we've uh, invested in. Uh, we've led the last two rounds. You should check them out. So I was like, oh, OK, cool. He introduced me to the CEO, Dragon, the co-founder. And and we, um, and we and we spoke and I got a really good vibe. And he was in America. And I was like, oh, when you're in Australia next? He said, oh, I'm back next week, but then not back for six weeks or something like that. And I said, you know what? I'm going to come over. I thought I might get a free pair of headphones out of it, <laughs> and I didn't. Uh, but we'll talk about that later. And uh, so went out, went for dinner with Nick and Dragon, and then went into the office and got a really good vibe. Uh, they offered me the chief marketing officer role at the time. I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm I'm happy, uh, but I'll do a day a week consultancy, and I'll I'll do that half in cash and half in equity. So. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like a direct investment. It was investment in my time, which then um, I got equity for. So, mm. um, so yeah, it was it was an interesting one. And then at the top of the year, I was like, you know what? I'm ready to throw myself in something new. I felt like it. The, I, I ticked off a whole lot of other things that I mm. wanted to, and I needed to change things up. And so I did. And so uh, late January, I, I agreed terms. First week of February, I started. Uh, second week of March, I shut down the office and came back to New Zealand. I was, I was doing Melbourne Monday to Thursday, um, so it was mm. it was slightly more taxing than I wanted. Yeah, and this this deal with the All Blacks, which you know, it's a huge endorsement uh, to get the All Blacks at any um, you know at any time. But to kind of get them, it's kind of you know, with with so much influencer content out there, it means a lot more if the influencer actually buys your product than if you've gifted it to them. And if the influencer, in this case being the All Blacks, decides to buy into the product because it believes in it so much, it definitely holds a lot more. Um, 
it, it, you know, it, it has a lot more impact than just paying them. How do you pull something like that off? It's taken a year, uh, and in all honesty, we signed that on the Friday before we announced it on the Saturday. So we've, you know, we've been sprinting to the line, and the last two weeks were some massive heavy lifting, and some times where I'm like, this isn't going to happen. This isn't going to happen. And look, I was probably having three or four hours sleep a night just, you know, just going, okay, how do I get this across the line? Because it's a pretty complicated um, deal. And But look, it came, I, I saw an interview about uh, the All Blacks with TJ Peronara talking about how music got him in the zone before a big game. And so I'm like, okay, cool. Uh, this would be awesome, and so I reached out to the All Blacks. This is before last year's World Cup. They were, you know, they were already in their zone. I I snuck some headphones into the players through <laughs> through someone that might be involved in working here at some points, I think. And um, uh, and so he helped. And, and so the, some of the players were really into it, but we didn't have a deal. And then we. Uh, Came back and actually the last meeting before lockdown, before I closed down the office, was with the All Blacks. And they were in Melbourne for the Formula One Grand Prix that got cancelled. And and it was at that point in March that they went, actually, let's push forward with this. Let, let, let's do it. So we did. And, you know, over that lockdown, we've... I mean, for us, we had, you know, obviously needed to get the exec team on board, needed to get the board on board, and then all the shareholders to... Um, be on board because so, they're all going to get diluted as part of this deal um, and you know, and obviously the All Blacks going in with the startup is also very unusual for them so I had to you know, make sure I took everyone through it but I think it's probably the best deal I've ever done mm. um, super excited about it super super excited and the coverage we've had over the last few weeks has been mm. amazing and Nura is a big, you know, big global ambition company. It's not, I mean, they're, they're in Australia, aren't they? But yeah. really, it's a, it's a, it's a global play. How does the All Blacks brand help you kind of hit that global stage? I mean, what's their profile like overseas? They're kind of famous, aren't they? As like the most winningest yeah. sports franchise. So they've got an eighty-eight percent success record in the last hundred years, a ninety-two percent record over the last ten years, and. Um, where do you think, this is an interesting question, where do you think the All Blacks sell their most jerseys, All Blacks jerseys? Japan? Yeah, you're yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. You're right. So, I, just, so, I, walked, I just, just suddenly just remembered seeing heaps of people walking Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. All yeah. Blacks, yeah, yeah. Right, and, and so it's, um, oh, look, we think uh, Japan particularly, Europe mm. definitely, and then America, we hope. Uh, all black. Look, here's the other interesting thing. There are more people playing college rugby in America than there are in New Zealand, Australia, and South Africa combined. Get out. So, um, yeah. So there, there's a whole lot of... Um, look, it's a very natural, organic thing in the sense that the players are always wearing headphones. Mm. They always want to be more in the zone. They want to cancel out. Um, all, all the noise around them, and so the headphones are perfect for that. The the players would never have done the deal if it wasn't for that, because this isn't just the rugby union; this is also the players union. So the players union own a big percentage of the overall deal. So 
the current players and future players should all benefit from this deal. Yeah, that's so cool. And that idea of like owning equity rather than just, you know, working for uh, a, a pay packet means that these can be really lasting. Yes, and, and, a, and, a, and a total win-win, yeah, yeah. right? And and so that that's that's the way we designed it, was to be a win-win, and, and we got it there, which was super exciting. Ah, that, that's so exciting. And as a, as a last kind of thought, you know, having, having had some, you know, um, really great success across a number of different kind of areas of, of the industry, what will success be for you? Uh, what is success to you? Uh, I don't know. I probably want to see this All Blacks deal not just be a great deal, but actually something that, you know, you know, makes Nura a household name. That, that, that's what that success will be like. And then off the back of that, then the All Blacks, so New Zealand Rugby and the Players Union will also benefit from that. You know, if they can help us grow, then you know, that, that would be a great success and I would benefit from that as well because I'm a shareholder, so that, that would be good. Um, and then I think it's just helping others and, you know, I've got a few deals I'm working on at the moment that uh, uh you know, in principle, based off the All Blacks deal, you know, more music related moving forward is, you know, we'll, we'll do sport and music. They're the two key things. Obviously, we had great learnings um, from, from seeing other brands work with sports and, and music people. And so we'll, we'll keep pushing that way. And I, I just want to help, I think. Ah, that's awesome. Well, thank you for coming and sharing your story to date. <laughs> Today, uh, that's Morgan Donoghue of In Music, Nura, uh, and um, a bunch of other stuff we didn't get to chat to, uh, like Pacifica Investments, but maybe we'll have to have you back on one day. Yes, yes. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's something we're actually spending a bit of time on now as well. So, um, yeah, the... That's some yeah. We'll, we'll aim to do some stuff with that in the new year with my two business partners in there. That's yeah. a fun one. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Simon. Lovely chatting. Thank you, Tina Tiller, for producing, and thank you very much for having us along in your ears. Cheers. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound, and brought to you by the Spinoff and Callahan Innovation. From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, Jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.